my worry, Nathan, my concern, particularly for for those those of us Christians who are running in in, in you know apologetic circles, who or who are interested in maybe having difficult conversations with skeptics, people who disagree with us. My worry is that sometimes, if we're not careful, we get sucked into a view of reason. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And happy Good Friday to you. Yes, Um, happy Good Friday. It's a wonderful time of the year for Christians. And today we're going to talk about the resurrection, rationality, or religion and rationality. Cameron, Cameron has a burr under his saddle. He's got something that's uh, irritating him here, and I use that equine analogy there just to make Cameron grin. But uh, Cameron, you you have a like a little concern, little warning light is going off on on the dashboard of your vehicle as we think about uh, rationality and the Christian faith. What's the problem? Give us the diagnostic right. here. What are you seeing that concerns okay. you? Yeah, so we went we went from equine to automobiles there real quickly. I thought that's funny. <laughs> yeah, we, we modernized. We modernized, and modernism actually is an apt word here because that's kind of what's, well, that's what put the light on in the first place. There's a helpful book I'm reading that I would recommend, actually. It's a little bit academic in nature, but yeah, if you want to read that, you can. I think it's worthwhile. It's called The Way of the Modern World. It's by a gentleman named Craig Gay, who teaches, he teaches at Regent College. And this book came out a number of years ago, and I think it got insufficient attention. It's the book where he brings forward the phrase practical atheism, where he's referring mm-hmm. to people used that who quite a bit. Yeah, I've used that a lot. Yeah. So people who might profess belief in God, but live as though he does not exist. And he looks at the different ways in which that is possible in the modern world. So I think very helpful book. This is one aspect of that. And this may run the risk of being a little bit niche. But you're a thinking out loud listener, so we figure you'll be fine with it. But he draws from Max Weber, who famous German sociologist, he of the Protestant work ethic fame. He draws on Max Weber's definition of modern rationalism. And I won't go into all the nuance of it and all the subtleties because you can go read the book. But essentially, Weber argues that rationalism for modern people is tied to a kind of instrumental understanding. It has to do with systems and procedures that give people more and more control. Let me give you a few examples here that Weber himself uses to illustrate the point. But one would be any kind of a bureaucratic system where there are all of these sort of impersonal policies and procedures that help manage these huge companies. That's one That's one example. The whole point behind this is very practical. It's to promote efficiency. It's to help things to run smoothly. And in the modern world, we largely think of rationalism by default in these terms. Systems and procedures that give human beings more and more efficiency, more and more productivity, more and more control. Another really shorthand way to say it, and this is just Cameron saying this, we think of rationalism, especially if we say if, if we're thinking practically, we think of rationalism as something that gives you an advantage, whether it saves you money, whether it's a profit, whether it saves you time, you name it. Something that benefits you. We're, we're always looking for ways to, you know, life hacks, ways to kind of enhance the quality of our lives. And usually that just means make more money, 
buy more stuff, save more money, get more time. So my point here in saying all of this is that this is a view of rationalism that is tied almost, well, it is tied exclusively to human efforts and oh. to human ambition and human ingenuity. I'll stop there let for me, a second. Yeah, let me go wildly speculative here and you see if there's a link sure. here. So Max Weber dies in 1920. Um, then right around that time, you have the origin of, this is me digging back deep into the recesses of my mind on the philosophy of science. You have the Vienna Circle and this whole German school of the philosophy of science that prioritizes empiricism over everything else. And so they would philosophically state that something can't be true unless it's empirically, mathematically, uh, tautology or demonstrable. demonstrable or empirically verifiable. Now, the hilarious pushback on that is that statement in and of itself is not empirically verifiable or a mathematical truth. So there's some issues there. But I'm just wondering, you have Weber as a sociologist. Does that, does, does that line of thinking not very nicely prefigure that exact view of science? I think it does. And Weber, of course, when he brings this up, is being critical. So he is, of course, Weber is a sociologist. And so he is doing his best to step back, take a few steps back from his cultural moment and look at it with the eyes of an outsider. It's never possible to do that entirely, of course. You can't be, you can't have a view from nowhere, of course, review, you know, that, that is an impossible point. But it is possible to take a few steps back occasionally and look at the views, the tacit views. See, those are the most important ones. The, the default settings that, you know, everybody just assumes they're under the hood, so to speak, but they're shaping the way we think, they're shaping the way we live. And so that's what but, Weber is doing. You know, that's what says, you're doing. Yeah, so the Ven Vienna, Sir, that's what I'm doing right now. That's what I'm trying <laughs> to do here. Yeah. And so, and these, these lines of thinking are, that's important because they are with us to this day. And I'll try to spell that out a little bit more, but yeah, so Weber is anticipating the Vienna circle logical positivism, and some of these other movements that try to give philosophical, formal, and systematic expression to this way of not just thinking, this way of living that increasingly is emerging in industrial and then in post-industrial society. But Weber also says that this is basically the reason, this is what's going to lead to disenchantment. And remember, Weber is the guy who gives us that, coins that phrase, disenchantment. And disenchantment in the sense that the universe is now kind of scrubbed clean of transcendent sources. Now, this never is entirely possible because human beings are spiritual creatures. But nevertheless, and there's got, there's been, there has been pushback in recent years because scholars are going to argue. That's, that's what they do. You know, what you do is you, you write a book and challenge a prevailing view. And so now there are a lot of people who are writing some pretty compelling books about how, well, we've never been disenchanted. But I think we can all agree, though, that on a basic level, Weber is right, clearly right. In, in modern world, I mean, just think about when you, if you go to an Eastern European country, a former Soviet nation, and you see those, just those blocks of buildings, that brutalist style, it is mm -hmm. hollow, empty, and soulless looking. Think Lots about how you feel when you go in. Well, yeah, or yeah, if you go into a government office, though, a DMV or something, or a government building, these, these, these buildings that are designed to maximize efficiency and that seem as inhuman as possible. I mean, 
disenchantment, disenchanted, that's a perfect term for, for that kind of setup. You might also apply that, by the way, to strip malls and some of the other, I mean, or even heck, a mall. You know, these commercial temples surrounding us that do, if you if you compare them to, say, a cathedral or something like that, they just, they feel so incredibly empty. And you hollow. don't find ATM so machines aesthetically pleasing? There you go. See? Yep. Yeah, so all that modern machinery. I man, you're you're making me okay. I hope I don't step on any toes here. I know a person. There's a certain I'm just going to name the, the the chain. So Nathan, are you familiar with Bucky's? No, you but you told me. Is? You told me. Oh my goodness. Only three. Yeah, so it's a, it's okay. I'm sorry if this offends some people. There seem to be some huge there's a cult of Bucky's. It's a gas station. And I'm I've met several people who are just passionate evangelists for Bucky's. And they go on and on. Oh, you can go in there. You can buy anything. They have they have restaurants. They have so much space. They have over two they have 200 pumps and and the whole time I'm just sitting there, I'm getting more and more sad. I'm thinking it's a gas station. My goodness, are we this culturally impoverished that now we've come to a place where this this is what what is seen as I mean, you you have you have the the pyramids, you have I mean untold <laughs> wonders in this world, the Grand Canyon, and we're talking, we're singing the praises of a gas station. And I can hear people already, it's not just a gas station. Yes, it is. But that's so that sense of of disenchantment, though, is for Weber deeply it's 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 a picture of a complete shift where now the universe has been basically all supernatural elements have been evacuated and what you have now is almost exclusively human ingenuity and human efforts my worry nathan my concern particularly for for those those of us christians who are running in in you know apologetic circles or who are interested in maybe having difficult conversations with skeptics people who disagree with us my worry is that sometimes if we're not careful we get sucked into a view of reason that is actually deeply modernistic has a lot more to do with the enlightenment than it does with christianity and ties us to this kind of instrumental practical view of reason so that when we say well i want to give a rational defense of christianity i want to say yeah but on whose terms and what's your what do you mean okay. by rational we, we need to get a definition real clear here yeah, so this is helpful because I think basically what you've been describing and outlining for us over the last several minutes, people would be like, yeah, well, of course that's out there. That's basically the logical conclusion of naturalism to some degree. So what are you telling us that's new? What you're telling us that's new is that this is becoming a Christian mindset. I think am, it am has I, been I, a Christian mindset so is that what in I'm, North America is, for Is that while, the distinction yeah. that I'm hearing correctly here? Where yes, Christians, I think many Christians at a distance would say bought in, have bought that's it. bad, but we've swallowed it. So therein lies the problem. Correct. Yes. I think a lot of Christians have. And the reason I think we're, we're at a juncture now in our culture where it's going to become a point of tension, where it's going to be a conflict of visions, is that we're at a point of cultural crisis. And the church is especially at a point of cultural crisis because Christianity, this has been building for a long, long time. People have been saying this for a long time. But Christianity is now viewed as socially poisonous by our cultural elites. And uh, we've, we've made it clear that that is not the case. I mean, you can go to small towns in America. You can go to a lot of places here. And churches still, you know, are in good standing with communities and all that. What I'm saying is cultural elites. 
Mm. And the trickle-down effect is happening. And I don't know precisely where this is all going. I'm not a prophet, but certainly it looks like every all the indications are that that will be a mounting sense of hostility, and it's continuing. So if that happens, Christians are going to have to make a lot of decisions that will put them at a cultural disadvantage, where you might—so you lose tax-exempt status, for instance. You lose political power and political office, you lose your job. Those kinds of things that put you in, put you at economic risk. They make you lose, you know, you can lose some of your influence in the community. All of, so those instrumental human effort kind of events that are happening. And my concern, Nathan, is that a lot of people will say, well, we have to be reasonable though. So maybe we need to be, you know, we just need to be honest about that this is a complicated world, which is usually, by the way, those kinds of phrases are usually a prelude to let's compromise morally. Yeah, let's I was just getting ready to say that. This yeah. is a complex situation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you're going to have a lot more of those conversations. And if you've bought into a view of reason that just prioritizes human effort and human control, it's going to be very difficult for you to not think that, well, I just, I have to do what's reasonable and I have to do what's practical. So again, we're back to, all right, but what do we mean by reasonable? Yeah. Okay. We have to get to, I think we need a better definition. Yeah. Let me try to put a test case. Let me put some practical legs on this. And you tell me if you think this is at all speaking to what you're saying. And I'm I'm also going to go for the trifecta here and pull in Easter. So are you familiar Mm -hmm. with, I mean, most people listening to this who have some exposure to the Christian apologetics world are familiar with the um, the minimal facts case for the resurrection. So the minimal facts case for the resurrection says, look, we don't need biblical resources to prove that the resurrection happened. We can go, we can look at all these other facts that are clearly out there and they're empirically verifiable by extra biblical sources. And we piece them together in such a way that the most reasonable outcome is that Jesus rose from the dead. So that is a an attempt of saying, look, we're not we can actually not use the Christian resources here. We can use the academic and historical resources around us and construct an empirical case for the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, that's neat. And I think there, you know, there's some value in looking at the extra biblical things there. However, is that a case of what you're saying here? Because the alternative would be that the gospels are eyewitness accounts and that it makes more sense to believe in the resurrection because there are people who were there who talked to Jesus after he was dead. So there's the shift, right? Of yep. one's an empir- like an empiricism and we don't have to use our religious resources in order to prove a religious point. And the other is saying, actually, I think the gospels are eyewitness accounts and there's pretty good evidence for that. That makes sense to me. And in fact, that provides even better foundation. So both are nice, but the way that you get there Am I am I correctly? And I, yeah, I don't want to jump on the head. You're of gonna get me in trouble, all, but you're who are all, yeah, who are all about the you know minimal ca- facts ca- case. But th- that is the shift. Am I correctly outlining the apologetic yep. shift there that you're talking about? You are, and I'm gonna proceed very carefully here because I know this. No, what you're you just named is a sacred cow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sacred cow in the in the realm of what's sometimes called classical apologetics, although. I think you and I would both push back on that classical title. When we say classical apologetics, we're not talking about Justin Martyr here. 
Right. Yeah. Yes. Why? Let me begin with a question before we just go into any. So, yes, I do have an issue with that. And I've considered and I've been thinking about those kinds of arguments for 10 years. And well, they've never sat well with me. They've never sat well with me. And they've always they've seemed well-intentioned, but also disingenuous. And I'll, I'll get mm, back ooh, to why I think that bold. is the case. Mm-hmm. But here, listen, the, my question then would be, okay, but why? Why would you want to discount the Gospels? Or why, why, why throw out all those religious sources? Okay, well, hang Let's on. Let me, so why would we let do me, that? Let, let me answer that. So, so I think somebody could come back and say, I'm not throwing out this other stuff. I'm looking for the lowest common denominator of what I can agree on with the person that I disagree with. So, so it's kind of like the, I think, therefore I am like, we're going down to the, to the minimum thing or the basic thing that all of us can agree on. And we're building the argument out of that. And the basic rational foundation of this is in an academic look at history and Greco-Roman literature. and events. Right. But see, therein lies. I'm not saying this is a good argument, but I'm saying that I think that, so right. you got to respond to that before you go forward with yours. Okay, well, that makes a very powerful assumption. That makes the assumption that human reason is sufficient to basically ground our view of reality. And that there's history that's I more think, accurate than the Gospels. Yes, but it, but ultimately, <laughs> the, the arbiter of all of this, the way you adjudicate and decide all of this, it's all grounded in human reason. So you're in an effort to meet your critics where they're at, so to speak, you throw out the religious sources and go for that lowest common denominator. Here, what is something that we can all agree on? But see, what you're agreeing to there is highly problematic in the first place. What, what yeah, to bring in your figure of Descartes, what he's doing right there, I mean, let's remember, what, what's, what Descartes is trying to do in that third meditation is he's trying to provide a proof for God's existence. He's trying to provide a rational foundation for belief in God that's justifiable and sufficient and can withstand any scrutiny and critique. But the problem is human reason isn't some kind of impartial, faultless gold standard. And doing that, by the way, that was what led to that emphasis on reason, of course, is what led us down the path to deconstruction. And deconstruction had some valuable insights and lessons to teach us about, well, the other way of putting it, sorry, in, instead of saying just always deconstructionism, you can say that the, sometimes this is called the hermeneutical turn, by the way. And there were some really nuanced thinkers here. My, my personal favorite among them would be Gadamer, who is a German, who is a German thinker, but that's we won't These go there Germans right now. Just keep getting the, in this conversation. They do, but that that notion that that reason is sufficient to give you a kind of transcript of reality, and that's that's overstating the case, maybe perhaps a little bit, and and overgeneralizing. But that view that that reason ultimately is what grounds uh, all of our knowing, and you may think that. But I'm going to challenge that, by the way. I think that is highly problematic. As, as Christians, we're not grounded on reason. We're actually grounded on revelation. And mm. given our assumptions as believers, 
yes, th- that will put us fundamentally at odds with those who dis- dis- who disagree with, who are skeptical or who are atheists. That's fine. But of, of course, we are in profound disagreement with them. So therefore, I think we should be honest about the fact that we are in profound disagreement with them and be honest about where we are coming from. And that's back to that word disingenuous, which is a strong word. Maybe I should use something a little softer. But why on earth would we as believers, in an effort to appease secular standards or critics, throw out our most vital resources in an effort to make some sort of lowest common denominator case? I think the effort there is misguided. Mm. All right. Well, can you so can you distinguish then between rational and reasonable? Or is that even a helpful trajectory well, of saying? <clears throat> yeah. Let's, so now well, we're backing take, up. So let, let's, let's, let's put something on this. Like, I believe in the resurrection sure. of Jesus. What kind of statement right. is that? Well, something can be, I think if we look at reasonable in larger terms, in the non-instrumental terms that, so Weber's sort of critical view of reason was that the way moderns use it is is as a sort of systematic approach to maximizing human efforts at control and procedures and all of that. Obviously, that that's almost a form of, I mean, that's like pragmatism a little bit. Go with what works and mm-hmm. find ways to maximize that. No, obviously, you know, the, the, the sciences, the natural sciences have, have played a huge role in that. And technology has played a huge role in that. Machinery, all of, so it can do some wonderful things. But if you don't have a, a bigger view of reason, would, would I suppose, your rational faculties would be those faculties that put you in touch with reality. I like the way that Michael Polanyi puts this. I think he's still one of the most helpful thinkers when it comes to epistemology. His personal knowledge was is a monumental text that more people need to read. But basically, he says, because of, because of our reasoning capacities, we can make contact with reality. But we don't have a view from nowhere. We don't have some sort of some impartial fail safe view. And that's not a bad thing. That's just because we are human beings and we're not omniscient and we see through a glass darkly. We're also impaired by sin and fallenness, by the way, but we can make contact with reality. Okay, let me, uh, yeah. Can can I ask for clarification along the way here just to bring us all along with you? Sure, of course, you need to. So you're saying that our, our rationality, tell me if I'm summarizing Cameron's thinking on this. You're saying that our rationality means that we can have contact with reality, but that reality is not totally described by our rationality. So it's helpful, yes, but it's right. not the master. No. Um, well, so another way of saying it, Nathan, and that's a good distinction, is that reality is independent of our will. That's crucial. <laughs> so every now and then you run into the hard walls of reality. We live in a moment where it's possible to do so much molding and shaping of our social environment that we sometimes get misled into thinking that we're actually in control of reality in some small way. And of course, we are not, which is why, by the way, when catastrophes happen, when disastrous things happen, as they often do, whether it's as they say euphemistically, a weather event, or whether it's an atrocity, a shooting, something like that. When we when we re- react with total shock, part of it is understandable because we're just we're just shocked and horrified by what we see. But when we say, "How could this happen?" That's really revealing to me, because mm-hmm. you say that, "How could something like this happen?" 
that usually that kind of 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 a reaction comes when we think that we ought to have been able to have controlled it. We should have been in control there. But if you have a view of reality that says no, the world we have influence, of course, make contact with reality, but the world is reality itself is independent of my will and can't control everything. So we should expect to see tragedy and pain and loss. That doesn't mean we, we stop working against well, it. That doesn't mean we, we are quietists. Yeah. But is there, a, is there a reverse of that, that you also are cutting off if you go down that trail? Where, where does awe and wonder and surprise? So you say, how can that be? Like this terrible thing happened. There are wonderful things that happen in the world that we would say, well, how can that be? Um, I mean, scripture has mm -hmm. that, how great the father's love, the hymns, and can it be that I should gain? You know, this kind of sense of like, whoa, I'm not in charge of that and it's awesome. I'm surprised in a, in a good and a healthy way. What is that? I'm trying to juxtapose yeah, so those two senses of, of, sh of shock one of them being ill-informed and one of them being proper. Well, that's a little bit, to go back to my gas station analogy now, Nathan, that's a little bit of what I was getting at there. So let me bring in a more venerable example that illustrates this point as well, because <laughs> I think what you're saying is so important. Sheets, yeah, another gas station. Yeah, on the station. one hand, well, no. <laughs> yeah, no, not quite. There's a, there's a response that says, how could this happen? We should have been controlled. But then there's another shock, awe, and wonder in a good sense where you say, wow, this is just sublime. This is amazing. And that's an expression of this is something that exceeds my full comprehension. This is, you're, you're expressing wonder at something that's bigger than you or monumental forces or just the sheer magnitude of something. So C.S. Lewis opens up the abolition of man. I don't know if you remember this, Nathan, with, he, he, he pulls in a, gr a grammar textbook and then takes this thing to task, just rips it to shreds. Because these two, the, these two guys whom he, he, he renames so that he doesn't actually, you know, drag their names through the mud. Very, very cordial of him. But they, they point to a story about Coleridge where they're, they're, that Coleridge relays about two people who see a waterfall. One of them, I think, says the waterfall is pretty, this huge waterfall. The other one mm -hmm. says it's sublime. And so these two grammarians, these who wrote this textbook, say, what the one person is saying who is when he says sublime is inaccurate that's not really the right way to say it what he what he's saying is this waterfall produces in me sublime feelings the waterfall itself is not actually sublime and cs lewis is saying no absolutely false there are wondrous sights like this giant waterfall like the grand canyon like you know some breathtaking view that and and that give you a response that and and the proper response would be sublime as in this is objectively something that is beautiful powerful and so magnificent it points beyond itself to some transcendent source that put it there in the first place and that that actually is a reasonable response and that pretty is an inadequate response i mean imagine yeah. So imagine going to one of the gorgeous beaches on South Africa or in South Africa, rather, or imagine, you know, going to the Grand Canyon or going to some, you know, Mount Everest, some amazing sight in nature and saying, hmm, look at that. Isn't that pretty? I mean, there's something almost comically inept about that. 
Can, it doesn't there's a it doesn't fit. How about this? So I'm, I'm I'm plugging along here, listening to you. Is it the case in the way that you think of it that all rational things are true, but not all true things are rational? Can we can we say all that all rational things are true, but not all true things are rational? So, well, so, so again, we're saying that if, that that rationality is a tool to help us get in touch with reality, as you've said, and so therefore things like empirically verifiable statements, calculus, for example, is is true. Like that that is an accurate model of the way that the world works in systems of growth and relationships of variables to each other. So so it's rational and it's true. It's just that you don't find. Remember when we were at Georgia Tech. And the atheist professor was on the panel with us, and he was saying yeah. how calculus doesn't help your marriage. That's right. That's not a that's not a denial of the truth of calculus or rationality. It's a it's a poke at there being more to it than just that. Yes, that's one aspect. What I'm really getting at here is that I think most people in the modern world have an emaciated understanding of rationality. So calculus and some of these different wonderful tools that we've developed are just that. Those are tools. And those are procedures and tools that, in the best of circumstances, help us make contact with reality. And in the best of circumstances, there's nothing wrong with enhancing our life. There's nothing wrong with saving money. There's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with finding ways to save time. There's nothing wrong with any of those things per se. But when they become a view of life that that you where you think basically human effort shapes reality which is what weber so for weber rationalism is synonymous with human efforts to shape re- reality i am saying that rational reasonableness actually has more to do with making contact with reality and also ultimately it's reasonable to understand the world as created by god and us made by God, for God, and neighbor, that that's a reasonable way to look at reality. But if you are a Christian and you believe that that's the reasonable way to look at reality, then that also means that when human systems become corrupt and run counter to Christian conviction, we need to prioritize conviction over convenience. And when that puts us at a cultural disadvantage, if we're not going to call that being unreasonable being impractical, we have to have a better view of rationalism. Mm-hmm. If we say, well, I have to be practical, we've bought in into that emaciated view of, rea- of re- rationalism, which basically just says human efforts are central. And that's at the heart of, of practical athe- atheism, by the way, is basically the good old-fashioned humanist tendency to put human beings in the seat of God and say, we're the ones in control. We have to do what we have to do. Politics, the economy, technology, that's ultimately how we secure all the goods of our life. And when you run into, once again, corruption, crisis, it's going to put that view to the test. Where do 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 your allegiances lie? All right. Let me, just as we bring this to a close, complicate this one step further. So to some degree, it's reasonable to assume that your rationality is not comprehensive. Yes, or absolutely. Because you're not omniscient. You're a human being. You're fallible. What, you have to, so, yeah. What I've been kicking around in my mind, how then would we deal with the idea of the Logos or the Logos, depending on if you use your Erasmian pronunciation or Greek, um, this idea of of the divine um, 
rationality, as it were, embodied in Christ. Is there a is there a, a helpful meditation then on the incarnation and reason and logic that Christianity uniquely pulls us into as we're thinking easterly here now? Well, one provocative little thesis I want to leave with you on that, and that is, I think one of the major themes of Jesus's incarnation, and this ties to John's majestic opening where he uses that logos language, which by the way is, would have been massively charged. I mean, he's basically bringing to culmination a very grand and profound tradition of thinking on the knowability of the universe and the comprehensibility of oh, that's reality all? itself. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all. Yeah, I mean, it's just, <laughs> just, just a little old tying together there from, from St. John. But I think what, what is, what's really important here with regard to our knowing is that Jesus pursues us. This, the incarnation, Christ comes to us. So there's the your modern revelation. view is shaped, it's a revelation. Yes, in a word revelation. The modern view is shaped very much by, I think our, our main dominant figures in the modern world are the scientist, the investigative journalist, or the detective. People who are rational agents who go out searching for the truth and follow the clues. And again, a lot of apologetic circles draw on this a little bit, and I think that's fine up to a point, just so as, so long as we're careful about what we think on reason here. And, and the notion is that we're the, we're the ones in control, rational people in control of our destiny. We're going to discover the facts. We're going to find out how this all works. Sharp contrast to that, the incarnation is the revelation of God coming to you, pursuing you, and revealing himself decisively so that we may know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is profound. So as we enter into Easter, this is, I mean, this is the great high celebration of the church. As we enter into Easter, just have that on your hearts and minds. That's my that's our challenge to you today as we conclude a fairly convoluted episode. Sorry about that. And this is, boy, I'm I'm generating mail for us. I just <laughs> I can just feel it. And please also don't hear me necessarily disparaging other really, I mean, very accomplished apologists who have done a lot of good. They have, okay? All I mean, minimal facts, people. So Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona and people out there who have done just a world of good. And I'm very grateful for their resources. But there also has to be room for some, some constructive pushback sometimes as we think through changing cultural moments. But as you, as you prepare your hearts and minds for Easter, think about the fact that you didn't go searching for God like a detective following the clues or like an investigative journalist or like some kind of scientist in the laboratory. The Lord of all creation came pursuing you relentlessly, passionately and loves you and desires your heart. That's just absolutely magnificent. So let that, let that ravish you as you prepare for Easter. And we hope this has been an encouragement to you ultimately. But you've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. 
If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.